Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the Neurosciences channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host today, Victoria Reedman, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Daniel Levitin about his new book, Successful Aging. This book is a fascinating read, arguing that age is 60 plus is a unique developmental stage with its own advantages and disadvantages. Moreover, it offers specific advice for how to maximize one's cognitive capacity and happiness throughout the lifespan and health span. Dr. Levitin is a cognitive psychologist, neuroscientist, and musician. He's the author of six international best-selling books, including Successful Aging. Dr. Levitin currently holds three academic positions. He is a professor emeritus at McGill University in Montreal. He is the founding dean of arts and humanities at the Minerva School at KGI, and he is a distinguished faculty fellow at the Haas School of Business at UC Berkeley. Dr. Levitin, it's such a it's such a pleasure to speak with you today. Oh, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you for having me. Of course. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well. Uh, surprisingly, under the lockdown, uh, my family and I are healthy, and we're uh, enjoying actually having a, a respite from all the travel we usually do. I, I'm happy that there's a silver lining to to the pandemic for you and your family. Um, well, do you very, mind if we? We're very lucky uh, <laughs> because uh, you know so many people have uh, family members who have been seriously affected by the coronavirus. We just count ourselves very lucky, but we're also very, I'd say, compulsively cautious. I think that's the way to be in this time. Hand sanitizer everywhere, masks on at all times. Well, you know, the it's interesting. It, it's kind of a, uh, a lifestyle disease in that um, if you're willing to modify your lifestyle and, you know, wash your hands and wear a mask and, and practice social <laughs> distancing, you're far less likely to get it. It's a behavioral change that can make all the difference. Mm-hmm. And some mm-hmm. people are more inclined toward behavioral change, more adept at it. Uh, some people are not. That's an interesting take that I actually don't think I've heard about uh, the COVID pandemic. Uh, based on your book, I'm not surprised that you and your family are particularly particularly adept at behavioral change. Very relevant, actually, uh, to a lot of the topics that you discuss in Successful Aging. Thank you. Yes. So to get started, um, I thought we would start with the basics. Like, from your perspective, what is aging? <laughs> Well, uh, uh, aging begins uh, from the moment of conception. We age through our time in the womb. We age as soon as we're born. And uh, we continue to age. It's, it's a, a host of physiological processes. Um, the ones that we notice are that we may grow taller. We, and, and when we get to a certain age, we start growing shorter or stooping or losing some um, muscle mass and, uh, and bone mass and um, actually get shorter. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we develop cognitive skills throughout the lifetime. 
there are some things we get better at right up until the day we die, even if we die at 120. There are other things that start to slip at a certain age. Um, for example, with every decade after 40, reaction time slows down. Memory mm -hmm. begins to slow. Um, aging is the process of um, how the body adapts to the passage of time. And I think it's everybody's favorite alternative uh, to, the, uh, to the other thing, which is dying. <laughs> I like that. Aging is the alternative to dying. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what made you want to write Successful Aging? Well, you know, um, neuroscientists have found a lot in the last 10 years about uh, how to promote brain health at any age. I mean, not just talking about people, say, in the last fifth of their life, uh, the final decades, but at any age, there are some things we know about promoting brain health and overall life satisfaction and bodily health. And most of the, the neuroscience side of the story hadn't trickled down to the average reader. So uh, mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to write the book. That makes total sense. Um, I mean, I mean uh, as a neuroscientist, I felt that I had an obligation to share what the field knew. I, I was, I kept waiting for somebody else in the field to write it and they didn't. So, I so it was you, my turn. Absolutely. Uh, well, I'm glad that you did. I, I really enjoyed the book. And one uh, sort of concept in particular that really uh, stuck with me was just the, the conception people have of elderly people. So as a 20-something, um, I found that before reading your book, my friends and I would speak about aging, um, as you described in it in the book, which is like this inevitable degradation of their bodies and faculties over time that should be avoided at all costs. Uh, and I think people would flippantly talk about not wanting to to live past a certain age because they didn't even see the value in it. And maybe that's um, because we lack wisdom kind of as younger people. But uh, this book really turned that idea on its head. Um, like one fact that I loved was that people report feeling happiest in their lives at age 82, which I had did not know that uh, before reading your book. So, so how do you think uh, young people should go about rethinking uh, this notion that aging is our bodies degrading and why should we? Well, the, the story about degradation of the body and the mind might have been true 50 years ago, but we're, you know, it hasn't, that story hasn't kept up with science. Um, when my grandfather turned 60, um, he had been smoking most of his life. He had been eating bacon and cream and nothing wrong with a little bacon and cream, but nobody <laughs> knew that the trifecta of bacon, cream, and smoking was going to be a cardiovascular risk. And he was a doctor. Mm -hmm. People just didn't know. Um, we didn't know about a variety of healthy practices and, uh, uh you know, he lived through the depression. There were a number of life stressors. I'm thinking of him at 60, and now my parents, father who's 88, I'd say he's in about the same shape my grandfather was when my grandfather was 68. Mm. And so that's part of the story. And, um, you know, I'm glad to say that you found, as a younger person, found some value in the book. I've heard from a lot of so-called life hackers or people in their 20s and 30s were optimizers. And they also found some value in the, the structure of the book, not just about 
how to think differently about being old, but how to think differently about being now. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It felt almost more like it was both why aging isn't as bad as you think it is and has benefits that you maybe didn't think about or expect, but also how to be happier and healthier in general. Yes. Um, absolutely. So um, another concept I really loved that you brought up that I think relates to what we were just talking about was the idea of the health span versus the lifespan. Uh, do you think you could explain uh, what it is and uh, why it's important? Well, so the lifespan, I think we all know what that is. You, you're born, yeah. <laughs> you die, and you know, it's however many years or days or decades that you have on the planet. Um, normally, that lifespan can be thought of as um, having a period uh, during which you're healthy. Um, and I'm not, I, I mean, generally healthy at the beginning of your life until some point towards the end. I'm, I mean, mm -hmm. sure, everybody gets the flu or you get a broken leg or you might have a, a debilitating illness for a while. But for most of us, you can think of birth to 70 or 80 as, as a healthy period. Uh, and then at some point we get sick and we die. We die of cancer or heart disease. There really isn't any such thing as dying of old age as you mm. know, but you yeah. know, there are various <laughs> systems that begin to fail and um, you're, you're sick. You might be sick for a day. Like my aunt, my mother's sister, you might be sick like that for 20 years before you pass. Mm -hmm. And your health span is, you know, regardless of how long your lifespan is, your health span is the proportion of time that you're healthy. And there are definitely things that we can do to push out the healthy period to make it last longer. There's not a lot you can do about lifespan other than avoiding like, you know, crossing the street against the light and uh, <laughs> taking heroin. And I mean, you know, the obvious things, but, you know, short of that, all, all you really can affect is the health span. Mm -hmm. Or the time in your life where you're not, not needing a total support right near the end. Exactly. Right. I mean, my, my, my aim with the book is to increase everybody's health span. I think that people, people differ about this. Um, mm -hmm. Some people would prefer to live a longer life no matter what. Um, but okay, whatever that length is, um, I think most people would rather have the longest stretch of time particularly near the end where they're conscious and engaged with life and taking pleasure from the world around them. That's and doing the most span. of the things they love, right? Right. That's the health yeah. span. I mean, Absolutely. there are a lot of people who, who like my aunt were um, very, very sick for 20 years and she had very low quality of life. Um, mm -hmm. It was, it was tragic. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, we see that in the hospitals all the time, people who are kind of on their last legs and, uh, I think there's a lot of depression and uh, loneliness, sadness that comes with being at that stage in your life too. Yeah. So um, in this book, you take a, an interesting approach to aging, which is both from the neuroscientific perspective, um, but also individual differences psychology. So my question to you is why are both of these so important, do you think, to the process of aging? And, and why was that perspective so unique? Well, the, um, 
individual differences psychology recognizes that um, you know the thousands of ways we humans differ from one another uh, we can use uh, an understanding of that to help uh, better predict certain life outcomes or make adjustments so that we can do better. Um, one of the big individual differences is in conscientiousness. Mm. And it turns out that conscientiousness is unevenly distributed. Some people are super conscientious, some people are not. But it turns out to be the biggest single predictor of how you're going to fair at every stage of your life and how long you're going to live and how happy you're going to be. And if you break it down, it kind of makes sense because conscientious kids aren't going to, well, as we were talking about before, a conscientious kid isn't going to run out in the middle of the road against the light. And mm -hmm. so isn't going to get hit by a truck and a conscientious adult will, f will probably not get addicted to heroin uh, and will probably um, follow enough rules that they don't end up in prison, which is bad for your health. Mm -hmm. And older adults will see the doctor when they're sick. And well, you know, you're a medical resident, so you know. <laughs> the problem is that 70 to 80% of patients aren't compliant, meaning they don't follow their doctor's instructions. Mm -hmm. But conscientious patients do, and they fare better mm -hmm. if they have a good doctor. So is a personality trait like conscientiousness malleable? It is. All our personality traits are. There, there can be a genetic predisposition towards it. And of course, the family you're raised in or the culture and community you're raised in can either um, attenuate it or amplify it, the tendency. But we can change at any age. That's, that's the big lesson from psychotherapy over the last hundred years. Psychotherapy mm -hmm. works. Not every form of therapy works for every patient. Not every therapist works with every patient. But psychotherapy is the act of making deliberate changes to um, how you um, how you react. Uh, mm -hmm. To I mean, you you can't control what the universe throws at you, but you can control how you respond to it. Mm -hmm. And. I don't mean to put too much weight on psychotherapy. Fact is, it doesn't work for everybody, but other people can change their personalities, traits, including conscientiousness, uh, through meditation or being in uh, social support. Uh, friends who are making a similar change. You all get together and decide you're going to help each other out. Education, uh, inspiration from art, literary figures, musical uh, pieces or painting can inspire you to want to change. Mm. Um, and this is a unique approach to neuroscience in that um, many neuroscientists just average across a whole bunch of different people and try to mm. come up with things that are common across all brains and all people. And the problem with averaging is that you lose some of the um, nuance where a lot of the interesting parts of the story may live. Mm. Uh, I mean, as an example, when, when they start giving out, when they start testing and giving out COVID vaccines, the vexing problem they're going to have is that the vaccines are going to work on some people and not on others. And mm -hmm. what they're going to publish is the average rate. And if a vaccine is only helping 20% of people, it may not make it to market. But 
those 20% of the people, that's a lot of people who could be helped. If we could mm -hmm. identify what it is about them, either in terms of genetic variables, lifestyle variables, personality variables, or most likely the combination of all three that makes them responsive to the vaccine, then we just give it to them and you've got 100% effectiveness. Mm -hmm. But it would take understanding the individual differences and in being able to apply the treatment appropriately, which I guess is the same for how one approaches aging and uh, which of the many suggestions and interventions throughout uh, people want to try or will ultimately work for them. Yeah, I, I, mean, I don't think that this is going to get solved in the next six months, the, no. the differences <laughs> side, but it's a goal. Of course. Um, and it's and at least in this case, when it comes to, to aging and how to do so to maximize uh, your health span, happiness, etc., people can do that for themselves too. They can, they can work on their curiosity, their openness, their yeah. conscientiousness uh, and take active strategies to, um, to, to stay happy, to stay motivated. Exactly. Yeah. So when you were discussing uh, the personality psychology, one idea that I found really interesting um, was why conservatism tends to increase with age. And I was just wondering if you could uh, talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, it's not true of everybody, but of course. Um, there is a tendency for us to uh, to not want to try new things as we get older. And one explanation for this is that, I, I mean, the, the neurological explanation is that there are declines in dopamine synthesis, and dopamine is a an exploratory neurochemical that rewards you for exploration. And if you've got the declines in it, you want to explore less. Dopamine production hits kind of a peak in the teenage years. And as we all know, some teenagers explore a bit too much, we might say recklessly. Mm. Um, another way to frame it, though, is that when you're in your teen years, in your 20s, you're still trying to figure out who you are in the world and what you like. Somewhere around the age of 10 or 12, many of us realize for the first time, we don't have to like the things that our parents like. We can make our own choices. We can listen to our own music. We can like our, the books that we like. And mm -hmm. we, you know, we might spend much of our teen years and 20s and even 30s trying to discover the things in the world that we like. Do I like Thai food? Do I like Burmese food? Do I like to read a book? Uh, as a pastime, or would I rather go out and play basketball? We're, we're sorting all this out. But then once we hit our 40s and 50s, this account goes, we, we know what we like. And so we want to begin maximizing the amount of time we spend doing that. Why explore mm -hmm. to find something, you know, why take restaurants. If I've got a bunch of restaurants I like going to, and I know I'm going to have a great meal. I might be reluctant at some age and at some point to say that I wanted to, you know, to go to try a new restaurant because it's risky. I, I might have a bad meal, which isn't a calamity, but mm -hmm. I've wasted an evening. And at the age of 75, I've got fewer evenings left. And so you want to maximize those evenings at the restaurants you know you already like. Yeah. 
Mm. But I, I actually argue that this is a bad tendency. It's bad for the brain <laughs> and that we need to fight back against it. We need to push back because this leads to complacency and it leads to um, a reduction in new neural connections. Every, mm. t- every time you try something new, you grow new neural connections. And those are what keeps the brain young and healthy and vigorous. And it's what can help fend off the symptoms of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel like that relates really well to um, the section in your book on exercise, which actually was one of my favorites because not only were you just extolling the benefits of exercise generally on cardiovascular health, uh, muscle strength, but getting into the nuance of the way one exercises and uh, the neurologic benefits of um, seeing new things in your environment and having to react to unpredictable situations on something as simple as a hike, I thought was a, a way I hadn't conceptualized exercise before. Well, you know, I think everybody knows they're supposed to exercise and everybody feels guilty that <laughs> yeah. they don't exercise more. So I don't have yeah. anything new to add there, but I do believe that exercise is misunderstood. Mm. Um, as you say, the the biggest benefits come not necessarily from running marathons, but from just walking in nature and um, the thousands of micro adjustments that your feet and toes and ankles and legs have to make when walking on an uneven surface. The, um, you know, even small levels of um, alertness that you have to practice when you're out in the wild where there's wild animals or, you know, pine cones. I, w- I went for a walk this morning. There was this terribly loud noise. And not 10 feet from me, this very large, heavy pine cone had fallen from the top of an 80-foot tree. And if I had been under that, you and I wouldn't be talking right now. No, that sounds like a concussion or worse. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, there's a certain vigilance that's associated with being outdoors that's actually healthy. You don't, you know, you don't want to be stressed out, but you want to... Stress is also misunderstood in that we need a little bit of stress to keep our immune system functioning properly and our brains alert. Too too much uh, mm-hmm. loss of that, and we fall into physiological complacency as well as psychological. So just getting up and moving around is the key. Mm-hmm. So it's funny because I went to. Uh, the Dalai Lama's compound uh, to visit with him a couple of summers ago. Mm-hmm. And um, you would expect that all these Buddhist monks would be super chill, but <laughs> are they not? Not particularly. No, I saw a fist fight at one point, you know, I, I not involving his holiness, but um, you know, they, they're stressed out about things too. They're, they're on the path and they can probably handle stressors better than many of us, but mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're, they're not blissed out all the time and they're studying there. There's a certain amount of, um, engagement and healthy stress associated with that. I, I really am having trouble getting that mental image out of my head of, of monks getting in a fist fight. So thank you so much for that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so speaking of meditation, um, uh, part of your book was talking about um, cognitive enhancers, um, everything from 
something like meditation, which of course is not a pill to others like modafinil, mamantine, rivastigmine, and even psychedelics. We actually had quite a um, a, a decent part of uh, of that chapter was on psychedelics. So what is the role of, of these kinds of enhancers in aging? Well, I think you and I both come uh, at this from a similar perspective, which is that the brain is a biological mechanism. It's and your thoughts arise from biology, mm-hmm. and um, the things that happen to us in life, either genetic or experiential, um, can alter our brain chemistry and our brain function. And some of those experiences can leave us uh, with brain chemistry that's out of balance. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of what meditation can do, if it's effective, is to uh, promote entering uh, states of focus or relaxation, of um, shifting attentional uh, mechanisms and changing brain chemistry and changing connectivity and firing rates and all these things. And not just meditation, Mm -hmm. but medication can do that. It's why SSRIs, uh, although there's mixed results in these antidepressants, uh, for some people, they work really well. They're altering brain Mm -hmm. chemistry. When when I talked about modafinil and rivastigmine and Exelon and the psychedelics, it was in the context of um, not so much trying to explore altered states of consciousness, <laughs> although people people have been doing that for thousands of years, and who am I to say uh, <laughs> whether that's a good thing or not? But um, I mean, on the surface of things, it seems like if you could expand your consciousness and if it could make you more empathetic and uh, experience more gratitude, that'd be a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are other ways to get there. And Mm -hmm. um, the point of the uh, the drugs I mentioned in the book is that um, some people's brain chemistry becomes altered either due to age or due to stresses and traumas. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, there are pharmaceutical and um, hallucinogenic drugs that can help. Like the ones we talked about. Yeah. Um, Great. Um, So speaking of other things that can help, in your book, it seems like you were, at least for part of it, debunking a lot of theories, particularly about dieting and about supplements. Um, So from your perspective, are there diets or supplements that can help slow the effects of aging? Is there any one fad go-to that we should consider? And where's the evidence? So... I worked on the book for four years and I spent a year of it working on diet because it's Mm -hmm. very confusing. And then after checking with a number of uh, nutrition scientists and experts on diet, including people with the US uh, FDA, um, I realized that the consensus among the experts is that there is no one diet that's clearly superior to the others. Mm-hmm. If there was, we would have heard about it. The, the basic mm-hmm. advice is quite simple. Eat a, lo- a wide variety of foods. Uh, probably eat more plants than you're used to. Mm-hmm. Um, try to avoid refined sugar. But, you know, it's okay to have ice cream once in a while. The problem is that if, if we set unrealistic goals for ourselves and then we don't keep them, we spiral into a, uh, you know, it's a downward spiral of self-loathing and, and judgment. And 
you know, unless you are diabetic or you're obese and um, it's the kind of obesity that needs to be controlled with diet as opposed to um, uh, 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 an illness and disease caused obesity, mm -hmm. then, um, you know, uh, in the long run, you're worse off for having tried to stick to a rigid diet and not stuck with it. Mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. um, now, the supplements is another story. Most supplements in Canada and the U.S. are not regulated as to purity. And a colleague of mine, David Sinclair at Harvard, actually looked at melatonin and a couple of other widely um, taken supplements. And what he found was horrifying The uh, in terms of all the things that were in there that shouldn't be there. And then the dosages were often way off from what was being sold. Uh, so there's that problem, but mm -hmm. the, the bigger problem is that there's almost no supplement that um, has strong evidence behind it for supporting, um, for, 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 for promoting, um, there's almost no supplement that promotes healthy aging or that uh, helps you to get younger or not age as fast. Mm -hmm. um, the vitamin D is one of the exceptions, it, there's support for that. After the age of 60, also, if your vitamin B12 levels are low, B12 supplementation can help. But in both cases, you don't want to just take it on your own. You want to have a doctor check your levels because you don't want to get vitamin D or B12 toxicity. Um, melatonin can be helpful, but not in the doses that people are prescribing it you you know as a neurologist that physiological levels of melatonin uh, are released about two hours before sleep, whatever your normal sleep time is, and about 0.5 milligrams are released. Mm -hmm. But almost every pharmacy you go into is selling five and 10 milligram tablets. Mm -hmm. And there's a doctor now who says that 80 milligrams a day will help cure cancer. Oh my gosh. Um, if you're talking about going that far beyond physiological levels, melatonin is not a sleeping pill. All it does is regulate the suprachiasmatic nucleus, which is the sleep-wake timing center. Mm -hmm. And people who take too much melatonin end up feeling hungover. It, does, it completely messes up their sleep-wake cycle. Uh, so you have to be worried about purity, and you have to be worried about not taking too much. Um, apart from that... Things like vitamin E that we thought were associated with reductions in cancer or fish oil supplements are actually now associated with increased risk of cancer. Mm -hmm. So I don't recommend any supplements at all other than um, vitamin D, melatonin, and vitamin B12. But then again, only if they're indicated and under the supervision of a doctor, even though they're available over the counter. Mm -hmm. I would add to that there's some recent evidence I wouldn't call it strong evidence, but in the last few months, there's emerging evidence that a daily dose of zinc can help with immune system function. Mm. And and I, with all of these things, my whole approach is if it's not going to cause any harm and you can afford it, why not try it? So I think zinc is in that category. Mm -hmm. But for the other supplements where we know they could be causing harm... Or for all the people who can't afford it, it doesn't yeah. really make sense. Yeah. 
Of course. So if you had to summarize, um, in addition to the supplements, the tangible advice you would want people to walk away from uh, after reading your book with um, and then implement into their lives, what would it be? I'd say that, um, well, the five, the five big things are to promote uh, conscientiousness, um, to, to, which is this cluster of traits. It, it, try to become more conscientious uh, if you think that's an area that needs some work. This is a cluster of traits that include doing what you say you'll do and um, being dependable and reliable and, and following uh, rules such as a doctor's rules about when to take your medication, having a doctor, going to see the doctor when you're sick, um, and being curious is another trait, getting back to the individual differences. You mentioned it earlier. Mm-hmm. Curiosity is one of the great fuels for the engine of the brain. It really keeps things uh, well-oiled and running smoothly. And um, all of us have an intrinsic curiosity about the world. The more you learn new things, the uh, stronger your brain becomes. Associations with other people is important. Um, Even for people who are shy, there's a certain amount of minimal human contact that we all require. Mm -hmm. And it's getting harder to obtain that during a pandemic lockdown, which means we have to make a concerted effort to um, figure out ways to stay in touch with people on a regular basis, even if it's just a phone call or a video chat. We have to schedule it. We have to make sure we make time for it in our lives. It's essential uh, because feelings of isolation are a very quick way to compromise the immune system. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's the healthy practices that we've been talking about of diet, exercise, and sleep. Those are the big takeaways. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, thank you so much for, for both writing the book and for speaking with me today, Dr. Levitin. Thank you for having me on the show. Of course. I loved your book, both as a summary of some of the most relevant neuroscience and psychology to the human experience, but also as a very hopeful way of reframing um, aging for society and me personally. I have to admit, even after reading your book, part of me thinks like maybe getting older is going to be the best, (laughs) you know, just waiting for that peak in my happiness at age 82. Well, and I think by the time you're 82, we'll have pushed it out another 10 years. Yeah, true. So 92. We'll have to check with each other then. That's going to be the peak for me, I think. I'll let you know. Um, but overall, uh, your book was fantastic. It has, it's a great read. It has such a lovely conversational tone and your narration on the audiobook book too is very lively. Um, uh, and so I, I would really recommend this book to anyone and it's being released in paperback on the 29th of December this year, right? Yes. Okay. Very exciting. I, I hope that, uh, release of the paperback goes well and thank you again so much. Thank you, Victoria. Take care. Okay. Have a great day. You too. Bye. Bye.